If you've been listening in, a New York Times article about rap lyrics that I read by a pool in the spring of 2022 brought me back 17 years when I decided to explore the origins of a secret hip-hop dossier and why the NYPD and federal government wanted to surveil, track, arrest, and indict hip-hop superstars. The way I chose to tell my story was in the form of a documentary. I called it Rap Sheet. Where I left off in the last episode was I was now in business with Pistol Pete Torres, Steve Lobel, and my best buddy Rick Phillips, who was my main source of financing. I was in the whole 50K. I'd never gone to film school, so what did I really know? But there were some core themes that were important for me. Now remember, I wanted to tell a story that defined this connection between hip hop and law enforcement. Here is another excerpt from Rap Sheet. In 2003, when the offices of record label Murder, Inc. and its founder, Irv Gotti, were raided by the FBI for the alleged laundering of drug money, the case became the focal point of my investigation of the rumors connecting hip-hop to organized crime, drugs, violence, and the so-called hip-hop police. The federal government's case against Murder, Inc. records read more like an indictment against former mob boss John Gotti, the same man Irv got his nickname from. Not something one would expect from a successful entrepreneur. Including the charges were allegations of a connection to one of New York City's most notorious drug kingpins. Kenneth Supreme McGriff ran a drug crew in the late 80s called the Supreme Team. Responsible at one point for an estimated $200,000 a day in drug transactions in and around the Baisley Park housing projects in Queens. McGriff is currently on death row. The relationship between Gotti and McGriff was at the heart of the federal government's case. Had Irv merely been helping Supreme put his life in order after getting out of jail in the mid-90s? Or was it deeper, as the press and law enforcement seemed to believe? Connections were made between murdering and several uh, prominent uh, violent gangsters from New York City, uh, like Supreme. I remember the reputation on the street uh, of the acts of violence by the Supreme team. They were pretty well known uh, in New York uh, for killing people and for drug dealing. The Murder, Inc. indictment represented an important landmark in the seemingly ever-growing police interest in hip-hop. As I began to look deeper into the Murder, Inc. indictment, I kept hearing the term hip-hop cops or hip-hop police being used by almost everyone I spoke with. When I started to film Rap Sheet, the events of the Murder, Inc. investigation were swirling around in the media. It seemed like on a weekly basis, the story of Irv Gotti and his brother Chris Gotti was something out of a movie script. Murder, Inc. was a massive music hit factory at the time. Ja Rule, Ashanti. What I didn't understand is how did Irv get into business with Kenneth Supreme McGriff, the notorious founder of the Supreme Team? I do know that the Murder, Inc. case was an excellent example of what the NYPD, FBI, and U.S. Attorney were looking for in terms of this connection between East Coast gangsters and the new wave of hip-hop record labels. Two parts of the case fascinated me. First, it seemed that the government alleged that Irv was laundering drug money, which didn't add up. Why would they launder Supreme's drug money with all this success in the music business? And second, Supreme, 
arguably was one of the most notorious crack kingpins. How did he get out of jail? The story of the Supreme Team, you know, Prince has never really told his story. And I would make a case that you really haven't talked that much in depth. What do you think people have gotten wrong in the media about the Supreme Team story? Oh, you said what's the biggest misconception? The biggest misconception is that we was a, a violent organization. As I said before, there was no killings going on back then. Or a whole, not even a whole lot of shootings. Everybody got along and everybody was just getting money. That was, that was the focal point. Everybody was playing from the neck up. Everybody was just chasing money. So that's, that's the biggest misconception, that we was a violent organization. You, you know what a myth is, right? A myth is, a myth is an old lie that people still believe. So that's what I, I'm still paying for that right now, the myth. The myth of the Supreme Team. Little did I know that 17 years after the making of my documentary, I would not only have the chance to interview the infamous Kenneth Supreme McGriff on the phone from federal prison, but also currently become the executive producer of a Supreme Team documentary for Showtime with rap star Nas directing. I also just visited Supreme's nephew, Gerald Prince Miller, in Allenwood Prison. As I reflect on my life and career thus far, I am grateful for my turn of good fortune. I could trace a clear thread that began with this first documentary I created to my ongoing search for answers to some of society's most complex and systemic problems. Their themes still loudly resonate with me today. I'm sure my pursuit will continue, but as a younger version of myself, where characters like Prince Miller were myths and scary figures, I would never have imagined one day calling them my friends. Everything was territorial back then, you know what I mean? And, you know, a, a lot of it really came from, you know, the respect that my uncle had, and then it came from the respect that I had. But the difference with me and my uncle was, I believe, see, a lot of things, he he was loved a lot, you know what I mean? And yeah. in my case, in my case, I was probably a little more feared than loved in certain people's eyesight. The knowledge I've gained around this subject is twofold and insightful. How I feel honestly is most of these gangster legends are really only concerned with two things. First, fighting their current incarceration and poking holes in the government's case against them that has put them in prison for life. They don't really care about romanticizing the times that they moved drugs and made money. And if I'm being honest, they're not interested in really telling the full truth either. See, they're savvy. They know anything they say that is recorded could affect their appeals or affect the path to becoming a free man. Now, what is interesting is our last president, Donald Trump, created something called the First Step Act that a lot of these guys are using after 30 or 40 years in jail to finally go home. 
The Senate has overwhelmingly approved a criminal justice reform bill. Nicole Killian looks at what this means for current federal prisoners. Has been agreed to. The Senate vote came Tuesday night. In a rare show of bipartisanship, senators voted 87 to 12 to approve the First Step Act. It uh, just proves that when people trust each other, uh, you can sit down and uh, get legislation uh, that's good for the country. It's a dramatic change. I think it reflects the fact that we realize that just getting muscular and tough on the war on drugs isn't enough. We've got to use our brains. The bill addresses prison overcrowding and creates a fairer system for nonviolent drug offenders. It eases the three strikes rule by reducing a mandatory life sentence for some drug offenders to just 25 years. And it improves early release opportunities and expands job training. President Trump tweeted about the vote Tuesday, writing that he looks forward to signing it into law and that it will keep communities safer while also saving billions of dollars. The First Step Act gives people a second chance in this country who are eligible for release from prison and re-entry into society, and that's many Americans. The House is expected to pass the bill later this week, and then President Trump is expected to sign it. Nicole Killian, CBS News, Capitol Hill. I was in the middle of creating Rap Sheet. I was not privy to the way that the federal criminal system worked. I was just learning. The Murder, Inc. federal case would be my first education into what a U.S. attorney is, who at the NYPD and FBI were actually investigating inside of hip hop, and why they were trying to make all these connections. As soon as they raided me, they sent a letter to the Universal Music Group said, if you give Irving Renzo one dollar, you're gonna be his co-defendants. So they held Because you gave him that money of which he's helping this fucking drug dealer Supreme out. So you're gonna be, you're gonna be his co-defendants. So they stopped me from getting probably like 50 to 60 million dollars. Cause now what has the Universal Music Group done? Got it, we can't, look, we can't do nothing with you. We can't give you a dollar. Look at the letter from the government. And they hid behind that. And I interviewed Chris Gotti, and we, we talked about this in depth. That Murder, Inc. was funded by, you know, essentially illegal money coming from Supreme. Is that is that accurate? Is That's that accurate as far as what? As far as what you were charged with. <laughs> as far as what they tried to say, but right. they changed all those charges. That's not true. The government, through so many charges together just so they could get an indictment. Okay. So when the indictment came down, it was two charges. What were the charges? Money laundering. Money laundering. And conspiracy to money laundering. What they try to tie you into was Bullshit. minuscule amounts of money way late into, into Supreme's yeah, career. Right. We're talking about a couple thousand dollars no. here and there. They try to say that Supreme bankrolled right. Murder, Inc. Right. And it was, it was all bullshit. Steve Lobel and Pistol Pete, my fixers, were doing their jobs. And one of the first interviews I did was Buster Rhymes, who, when he saw the book, definitely thought I was a cop. But he did tell a story of surveillance, maybe borderline harassment. We go into the Grammy party, some minivan with about four cops, four to six cops was in it. What's up, Buster Rhymes? I just wanted you to know that we're gonna be, you know, if you see a little car in your rear view mirror, whenever you're moving around for the next couple of weeks, 
we just want you to know that it's us and we're gonna be following you. I said, I don't want y'all to be following me because y'all ain't on my payroll. So you ain't really following me to protect me, you following me to investigate me. I got out the car, I went down in the train station, them dudes got out their car and walked with me into the train station. And I said, I'm waiting on the train. You wanna follow me? Cool, we gonna ride on the train all the way to wherever I feel like going. And y'all just come follow me then. Trying to tie Kenneth Supreme McGriff to money laundering and murder ink was sexy. But why were undercover detectives following Buster Rhymes? He wasn't a gangster, he was making music. So as Pistol Pete and Steve were working the hip hop angle, I was trying to work the cop angle on my own. In searching for concrete answers about the reported surveillance in the 500-page book, I sat down with Lou Savelli, a former member of the NYPD. Savelli was one of the most decorated officers within the force. He was the founding member of the gang unit, which was formed in 1996. Most of the time, and we've actually done surveillance on rappers, it was because of the protection of the actual group itself. I don't remember any, any incidents specifically where we actually followed a rap group around looking to catch them doing something. For example, 50 Cent. Uh, he was followed around several times because of the fact that we felt he was in danger. Buster Rhymes is another um, rapper that we felt that there was potential for him to get hit as a result of a murder contract or an act of violence. He was put under surveillance. You know, he acted like he didn't like it, but I think deep down inside, he really felt that it was good that we were there to protect him, but it kind of hurt his street credibility. Derek Parker was said to have been the lead detective in the NYPD gathering intelligence on the hip-hop industry. Coincidentally, Parker trained under Lou Savelli in the gang intelligence division. It was said that Parker was dismissed from the NYPD after he became too close to the subjects he was supposed to be investigating, the hip-hop stars. Lou Savelli was legit, and the story he told was interesting. The actual Rap Intelligence Unit, which was the official name, was created out of the NYPD gang unit. And I'm sure there were legitimate reasons. But there was a part of the story that did seem odd, and that was the story of Derek Parker, who proclaimed himself in the news the hip-hop cop. And guess what? He was making a movie, and he had a book deal. But who was Derek Parker, and was he legit? I was already looking into the hip-hop industry because they had come across my desk with a few homicides. I had a few homicides involving guys that were in the um, rap music industry. So what happened was that uh, I was promoted to the Cold Case Squad, and that's when the hip-hop world really came together. While I was in Cold Cases, I was going around uh, dealing with um, unsolved murders in uh, the whole borough of New York, and I was traveling to different cities, bringing people back for murders. And uh, what happened was that I had told the commissioner, I think it was Ed Norris at the time, about this hip hop world. And I was telling him about the murders and things were going on. I mean, he listened to me, but nobody really took it really seriously until Tupac got killed, opened up some eyes. But when Biggie Smalls got killed, that's when I told my, my boss, who was an inspector at the time, about the murder of Biggie is gonna come back to New York. It's a tad bit comical to be able to analyze my knowledge base 17 years ago. It was rudimentary, naive, and operating at a sophomoric level, but it was part of my journey to get this film made. The only problem was that again, I needed money. 
I was in Hawk to the Mafia, Old Pistol P and Steve 50K. And I had to pay for tapes, for the camera, travel. I was a one-man band, shooting the interviews myself, doing the research, the writing. Now remember, the internet was just really jumping off where you could search old articles or really use it like a source. There wasn't YouTube where you could watch videos on what I was trying to do. And to make matters worse, every call I made to the NYPD, they just simply denied the hip-hop cops existed at that time. It was borderline losing my mind. How did I actually think that I could get this film made? 